Okay, if you could turn to Luke chapter 7. We're picking up where Marty left off. I wanted to kind of give you the lay of the land in uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Luke, so that uh, this text made a little more sense. We're going to pick up here. <clears throat> ah, that's the issue. We're going to pick up actually in verse uh, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the anointment. The ointment, rather. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation 
depends upon our true understanding of Your Holy Word. Grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend Your Holy Word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand Your gracious will, cherish it, live by it with all earnestness. To You praise and honor. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1973, the band Deep Purple, I hear that groaning, <laughs> released the album, Who Do We Think We Are? Sort of a bold kind of title for an album. Who they thought they were was, at that point, the best-selling band in the world coming off of uh, their iconic song and the Made in Japan album. That's who they thought they were, the best band in the world. Not everyone agreed with that sentiment, obviously, and most of you don't agree with that sentiment, obviously. (laughs) But that's sort of the thing I see that runs through this whole passage. Not who do we think we are, but who does he think he is? Jesus basically asked them at the beginning of that passage, who do you think John the Baptist was? Who do you think I am? And that question sort of runs throughout this text that happens at the dinner party that Simon throws. Because that's where he ends up. That's where some of his other guests end up. Who does he think he is? Our big idea this morning is that only Jesus can forgive the sin that He sees in our hearts. The first part of that is that Jesus is the great seer of hearts. It's interesting that one of the grumbling Pharisees in a rather strange turn of events has decided to invite Jesus to have dinner with Him. We're not given any indication as to why he decided to do this. He doesn't seem to be a friend of Jesus, but probably just showing some measure of hospitality to the visiting rabbi. Maybe he was seeking some honor amongst the people for doing this. We don't know. We don't know. But his house was probably a, for that time, large middle class house. Some homes were remarkably small, but his most likely had a courtyard, and the meal probably took out, took place outside in the courtyard, because that's usually where the ovens were. And it was easy to get. It wasn't like, you know, if, if uh, we had our neighbors over the other night for dinner, and it, uh, you know, you have to come through the door if you're going to crash our party. Okay, there's no door, so to speak, for them to come through to crash this party. And so we hear that a woman of the city, a woman whose name is not given, she remains anonymous throughout this entire thing. But a woman of the city who was sinful. The wrong kind of woman has come into this party. She is well known for an unspecified sin. But it is as if she had a scarlet, scarlet A on her gown. 
Because while it may not, we don't know what it was, but still everyone else knew what it was, and everyone else knew her for it. There was no hiding who she was. But she comes, and weeping, she begins to clean the feet of Jesus from the dirt and the muck of the road. She wets his dry feet with her tears. She wipes her feet with her hair. She kisses those feet. And then takes ointment from an alabaster jar or container that she had and anoints his feet. I'm sure everyone was a little uncomfortable. One, knowing who she was, and then two, what she, they saw her doing. I'm sure some of them were thinking, who does she think she is? What's she doing here? In a Pharisee's house. An upright man's house. And she's touching the feet of the rabbi. Who does she think she is? But it doesn't stop there. The Pharisee says to himself. In other words, this is what's going on in his heart. He's thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him. Implying he wouldn't let her touch him. He thinks Jesus doesn't know what's going on here. That Jesus should be just as uncomfortable as he is. That Jesus should have a sentiment that he is expressing within his own heart. And so part of what he's probably wondering is, who does Jesus think he is? He doesn't seem to be the same guy that everyone's so excited about. Maybe he is someone who is a glutton and a wine-bibber, just like all the people he hangs out with. Maybe he's not as squeaky clean as some people might think. And Jesus answering said to him. Now, that's important. Remember, this is a dialogue within the head of the Pharisee. But Jesus answers him. Jesus is able to perceive what's going on within the heart of this man. He knows that this man is applying some of the scriptures. He's all about things like Psalm 97, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He's hating evil. He's got part of the scriptures right. But you see, Simon the Pharisee only has some of the scriptures right. He forgot that whole sacrificial law that points to the fact that he served a merciful God. He seemingly forgot that revelation of God that takes place to Moses on the mountain where God declares His name and the first two things He says is that He is merciful and gracious. Simon the Pharisee doesn't seem to embrace a merciful 
and gracious God. And that's part of why he's struggling with Jesus' lack of response to this woman. And see, Jesus sees this. This should not surprise us if we believe that Jesus is, in fact, God the Son. Because we know from Psalm 139, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And so these words that were only in Simon's head and were not yet on his tongue, Jesus knew them altogether. Likewise, from our call to worship from Psalm 44, He knows the secrets of our hearts. And Jesus perceives the secrets of Simon's heart. Jesus knows the real Simon. The Simon that no one else sees. The Simon that Simon keeps hidden from everyone else's eyes. Jesus sees beyond how Simon presents himself to the world. Jesus sees the secret Simon. But it's not just the secret Simon that he knows, it's also the secret woman that he knows. Jesus says later on, her sins, which are many. Jesus knew. It's not because he asked everyone about her. It's because he knows the secrets of her heart. Jesus is not confused about her actions. Jesus is not confused about her thoughts. Jesus is not confused about what she has done in the past. Jesus is not confused about you. Jesus knows what you have done. Jesus knows what you have thought. Jesus knows what you wish you could have done. Whatever your secret, Jesus knows. You may not have told any other living human being, but Jesus knows. Because Jesus is the great seer of hearts. And so, therefore, He sees into your heart. You can keep nothing from Him. Sometimes we think we fool other people. But they know. We still think sometimes we can fool Jesus. But He knows. We can't fool Jesus about who we are because He sees the secrets of our hearts. Jesus is also the great evaluator of hearts. He not only sees, but he makes moral judgments about people's hearts. And so Jesus, to get to his point here, shares a parable that will get to the heart of Simon as well as to the heart of this woman. And he tells a brief parable about two two people who owe money to a money lender. 50 denarii, 500 denarii. Ten times more. Denarii, day's wage. So if you think about a six-day work week, one person owes about a month and a half salary. The other person owes about two years' worth 
of salary. Can you imagine that for a moment? Owing that much money? I can't. Oh, wait a minute, I do. I have a house. <laughs> and some of you do too. Imagine if you had to pay that off today. And so the parable is that this, these two people, both of them owe money. They both owe different amounts of money. And yet this money lender forgives both their debts. Okay? They both have been forgiven or graced. The word that is used for forgiveness here is tied to that word of grace. They were graced. And the implication here is that sinners, whether they're big sinners or small sinners, whether they're uh, a month and a half sinners or they're two-year sinners, receive grace. Not sure which sinner you might be. Doesn't matter. There is grace to be had from the feet of Jesus. So, there is no distinction, as it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, you've fallen and you need grace. Paul reminds us, using this very same word for forgiveness, that we are intended to grace others as we have been graced. We see that in Ephesians 4.32 as well as uh, Colossians 3.13. That's supposed to be one of the marks of the the Christian community, the, the body of Christ, the church, is that we recognize we have been graced in Jesus Christ, and so we grace one another in Jesus Christ. We don't hang on to stuff. We forgive. Or in a sense, we're paying it forward. Like the person who... You know, this never happens to me, but I've heard stories about being in line at Starbucks and the person in front of you pays for your drink. Paying it forward. And you find someone else, you pay for their drink. We have received grace, therefore we give grace. We pay it forward. But now comes the kind of, the hitch in the parable. He asked Simon, now, which of them will love him more? Who will show more appreciation? Who will show more loyalty or fidelity? The big sinner or the small sinner? Well, (laughs) Simon supposes that it would be the great sinner who would love better. And he's right. And so Jesus now applies Simon's answer, evaluating the heart of the unknown woman and Simon himself. Jesus is making the secrets known, so to speak. He says that she has been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. 
And he praises her for showing great hospitality. All of those things that we talked about were supposed to have been done in a different way by Simon. The rules of hospitality within that time were someone came to your door uh, and you invited them in to uh, partake of a meal with them. You provided water for their feet so they could clean their feet. And uh, you provided oil to anoint their head that you would greet them with a kiss. Simon has done none of this. She has done all of that. She has loved Jesus greatly where Simon has not loved him much at all. Now, thankfully, we wear shoes, most of us. And so when a guest comes to your house, you don't ask uh, if they need water for their feet, but you might say, can I get you something to drink? If we lived in the north and it was cold, you'd say, may I take your coat? There are certain things that are expected when you show hospitality and bring someone into your house, and uh, she has done these things for her culture. She did them, Jesus says, because she had been forgiven much. Perfect tense. That had taken place first. It is not the love that takes place first. It was the forgiveness that takes, that was taken for, that took place first. And in a sense, he's, he's praising her for showing great hospitality. Now, it may have been a little uncomfortable for Jesus to receive this, this hospitality. Uh, it would feel strange for me to have a woman crying at my feet and wiping my feet with her hair and kissing my feet. That would be a little weird, especially if we weren't married. But Jesus received it for what it was, a token of love, a token of appreciation, a token of loyalty. It's as if she is kissing the feet of her king. Simon, on the other hand, though he was would be considered an elder within uh, his community, does not display the characteristic of an elder, as I noted, because he does not display proper hospitality. Why does he not display proper hospitality? It's because his heart is hard towards Jesus and the woman. Not just the woman. His heart is hard towards Jesus. And so he doesn't treat Jesus well, even before the woman shows up. Simon is being exposed. He's being exposed for judging the woman as well as being exposed for judging Jesus. He has put them both on external standards. He's using, in a sense, the wrong scales in his own evaluation of them, and therefore he gets it wrong. Sometimes that happens. When we were in Florida, for a while we had um, a meal together after every worship service. We just thought it was easier. We had One of the ladies in the church cooked stuff and people would bring salad or whatever to kind of fill out the meal and, and that would happen. And one Sunday, uh, our musical director came over and she rubbed my neck, my little shoulders. She must have thought I was stressed out. I don't know. 
But someone took that in a completely wrong way and gave me a hard time for months as if I should have rebuked her. How dare you touch me? I never quite understood that. He was, this person was using the wrong scales. And not seeing love, but seeing lust where there was only love. Because this person and I were sort of like brother and sister, which means we argued. <laughs> but we were close. It wasn't like we just argued. We were close, and we argued. Sometimes we judge with the wrong lens. We, draw, we judge with the wrong scales. And Jesus is revealing that Simon is doing that very thing. And so Jesus exposes Simon's lack of love as well as his lack of righteousness. You see, Simon is blind to his own sin even as he sees clearly her sin and as he imagines Jesus' sin. So Jesus knows what the secrets of our hearts mean regarding the state of our hearts. And the good news of this is that Jesus is the great forgiver of sin. Jesus does get to the crux of the issue. Her love for Jesus indicates the depth of her forgiveness. Again, he said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He uses a different word this time from the one he used in the parable. This time he uses a word that is more of a legal term, to be let off, to let go, to be sent off. It's a word that is used in the context of divorce. To send a woman away, because women at that time did not have the right to divorce their husbands. Just they had the right to be divorced from their hus- by their husbands. Um, and so to be sent off, to be released from uh, legal responsibility, you see? She is no longer legally bound to her sins, is what Jesus is saying. That's part of why Tim Keller notes that forgiveness means not making the offended party pay for the sins they have committed. You're removing them, uh, relieving them of their legal responsibility. Okay. Now, the reason that Jesus released her from her legal responsibility is that he took that legal responsibility upon himself. And we see that even within the parable. The only way for the moneylender to forgive the debt is to take the pain of the debt himself. To absorb the loss of the debt himself. And this was not the United States, so he didn't get a tax write-off. Okay, It was painful for him to say, I forgive your debt. It was 550 denarii's painful to forgive the debt of these two individuals. Jesus assumes the responsibility for this debt, and Jesus then pays for that debt for, uh, that our sin creates by His death. Because we owe death. 
the wages of sin is death. But He died in our place. He bore the curse for us so that we can be forgiven. We see in Colossians 1, for instance, that the Father has delivered, or Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, if we're in Christ's kingdom, we have been redeemed, and that means that we have partaken of, at bare minimum, the forgiveness of sin because of the blood of Christ, the death of Christ for sinners. And so, Jesus continues. He grants her assurance of pardon. Properly, this is in the perfect tense. So just so that we understand, it's not her love that creates the forgiveness. It's her, it's the forgiveness of Jesus that creates the love. Let us not confuse the order of events here. They're very important. And that made some other people unhappy. Who is this? Who even forgives sin? Or, you could put it another way, who does he think he is? Only God forgives sin. Jesus, in their minds, has no right to forgive her sin because it wasn't committed against Jesus. So they thought. But Jesus has the power to forgive sin because he was God the Son in flesh and bone. But what I think we need to remember is that their grumbling hearts and Simon's grumbling heart reflect the lack of forgiveness that they have experienced. And I think this is true for us. When we, when we lose sight of how much we have been forgiven, we can easily lapse into grumbling, into complaining. Because we forget how good God has been to us. Jesus clarifies things just a little bit more for those guys who are grumbling about Jesus' excessive kindness. And, uh, and from their perspective, um, his overstepping his bounds, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, it is faith that receives grace and pardon. Paul expressed it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not her love that produced forgiveness. If it was, then she could boast before God. But she simply received the grace of God by faith. So now all the boasting is in Jesus, the great forgiver of sin. Not in self, the one who earned forgiveness for sin. Her faith. And there's a, something implicit there to all of these grumblers Believe, and you too will be forgiven 
and forgiven, you will love much. The only thing that keeps them from forgiveness is unbelief. They don't believe Jesus has the authority to do this, and they don't believe that Jesus' subsequent death on the cross could accomplish this. What are we to think of this? One of the things that we should think about this is that if we have been forgiven, we, like her, have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we should no longer have a troubled conscience. Sometimes we torture ourselves over sins past. We need not do that. If it has been forgiven, move on.org. Stop beating yourself up. Precisely because Jesus was beaten for it. Stop shaming yourself. Because Jesus was shamed for it. Move on. Be thankful that Jesus has borne that sin for you. And be grateful. And grow in love. This also means that we as a people, as a church, should be gentle toward repentant sinners so that they can live with us, so they can be nurtured, so they can grow. We shouldn't be looking down at them, oh, what a horrible life they led, but we should say, thank God they've repented. Come now, let us rejoice together. Okay? Broken people need to know that they're in a safe place. And some people don't like that term broken, but we fell. We're broken. Just as much as Claire's collarbone is broken. That doesn't rule out the fact of our guilt. It just means that in Adam, we broke. And when we sin, and sometimes when we've been sinned against, we break. And we need tenderness so that we can heal. And the, the church should be a place where repentant sinners find tenderness so they can heal, so they can be restored, nurtured, made whole again. What this also means is that we grow in love as we grow in our awareness of forgiveness. Now remember, everybody sins. Simon's problem was he thought he didn't sin. We need to lose this idea, if if we have it, that we're better than other people. Because while you might be a 50 denarii sinner, guess what? You're a 50 denarii sinner. Don't boast that you're not a 500 denarii sinner. 
Say, I need my 50 denarii sins forgiven. And when you receive the forgiveness, you will grow in love. And so sometimes our love for Christ grows cold, as we see in Revelation with the church of Ephesus. And the the, the cure to that is to go back to the cross and to remember the many sins that have been forgiven. Sins that you committed. That's part of why we have our confession of sin every week. I want you to grow in love for Jesus. Because you realize... Keep sinning. And he keeps forgiving. And so your love for him should grow. If you believe that Jesus pardons sin, then remembering your sin isn't distressing. It should be relieving. And the sign that it's relieving is that you're growing in love for the one who loved you when you were helpless, when you were a sinner, when you were his enemy, all of that Romans 5 stuff. Well, who do we think we are? was not their best album. It actually signaled the demise of that incarnation of the band. A band that was tired of touring nonstop and was tired of each other with, with personality conflicts. This dinner party reveals conflicts, but even better than that, it reveals Jesus as first the one who sees the secrets of our hearts and then as the one who evaluates whether or not grace has found a home there. Like, see, that wouldn't be good news in and of itself. It's only good news if you trust the one who pardons sin. A pardon that isn't earned, but a pardon that is received simply by faith. And so, cease your senseless striving Cease your conniving to gain forgiveness and to enjoy the peace that comes with the gift. Trust in Jesus, the one who forgives sin, whether you're a 50 denarii sinner or a 500 denarii sinner. Both of them need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the friend of sinners, big and small. That we can't outsin grace. And our sin is not too small that we don't need grace. And help us to reckon with that in our hearts. Precisely because we can struggle so much with pride. So much with, um, well, at least I'm not. As though that washes away what we are. So help us to be increasingly honest with you at the foot of the cross. Where those feet she cried over and cleansed and anointed 
were pierced for our transgressions. For our salvation. And so help us to grow in love for you. And people just like ourselves who need you. So that we will on the one hand be astonished by grace. And on the other hand freely offer it wherever we go. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.